Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 185th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. Most people call me JAG. I'm the CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, unconventional ways, including our graphic novels, animated and AI animated videos, even music. Uh, today, we are joined by Dr. Robert Malone, a man who needs very little introduction. But before I even do get to that, I want to remind all of you who are joining us on Zoom, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. This is a really special opportunity. You can use the chat uh, section to go ahead and type in your questions and we will get to them, as many of them as we can. Uh, Dr. Robert Malone is an acclaimed scientist who has often been referred to as the father of mRNA vaccines. He was one of the first to raise questions about the efficacy of the vaccines and question the, uh, the benefit risk uh, profile, particularly for uh, younger people. Um, he also has been a, uh, a fierce critic of the lockdowns and mandates from the very beginning, uh, only to be censored by big tech companies, including being uh, at one point banned from Twitter X and having numerous interviews uh, struck down um, on YouTube, which is why uh, we're live across all of our platforms, except for YouTube. Uh, Dr. Malone is the author of Lies My Government Told Me and The Better Future Coming. Um, we're going to talk about that. It draws on history, psychology, economics to break down uh, the lies that um, the government has told us about COVID-19 and why um, people came to believe them. So Dr. Malone, thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me, Jennifer. Jennifer. And uh, Happy New Year's and happy New Year's. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Okay. You might have another um, LinkedIn account, um, uh, another Zoom account open, hence the echo. So um, I don't know if Jill is in the background somewhere. She might be able to nope. fix uh, that. I can guarantee uh, I have no other Zoom. Zoom. Okay. And, and I absolutely am hearing your echo. You're hearing me echo. I'm hearing echo as part of the broadcast. Okay. All right. Well, we'll just uh, try to get through that. Now, um, I have a feeling we're going to get even more questions than usual. So I want to encourage everyone to queue up and uh, start typing in your questions. But first, I want to share how Dr. Malone and I first met. Uh, it was last month in Dallas at a conference hosted by my good friend and a frequent guest on this show, uh, Jeffrey Tucker. And of course, I was wearing my Atlas Shrugged purse, and you came up, pointed to it, said Atlas Shrugged, greatest book ever. So first, our audience would love to hear your Ayn Rand origin story and why her message of reason, individualism, and liberty matter so much um, in light of what's happened over these past three plus years. Well, and, and let's remember that Ayn Rand was intimately integrated into the Austrian School of Economics that's now referred to as the anarcho-capitalists uh, embodied in Javier Millier, the recently elected president of Argentina. Uh, so 
my I burned through all the in Rand books uh must be 20 years ago or a little bit more. Uh I had just had some setbacks. Boy, this echo is driving me nuts. Um sorry about that. Uh, I I had some personal professional setbacks. Uh, I was laid off of a job working as a government contractor in biodefense mm-hmm. at the time when Tony Fauci kind of swept in and took it over. And I was having real difficulties kind of grappling with the way the world was, as opposed to the way I had been taught in school and had believed that uh, was the nature of the world and uh, things about fairness and equity and all those kind of things just didn't seem to make sense. And uh, I began reading the books uh, and it it totally restructured my world much as has happened during the COVID crisis over the last four years. Uh, it's maybe the COVID crisis has finally disabused me from much of my remaining naivete but it's the structure of how Ayn Rand approached the world, her understanding of communism and Marxism and socialism, and the logic of the supremacy of the individual and the freedom of the individual. And in particular, Atlas Shrugged and the uh, logic around Galt's Gulch. Uh, and hence the name of my substack, who is Robert Malone, of course, is a, a reference to that. Uh, who is John Galt? So John Galt as this uh, stereotypic figure of the innovator, uh, quietly working, building value, uh, innovating in his area of core competence, which, by the way, I think... You probably know more better than I. There seems to be echoes of Tesla's career in in his story, uh, just like in the Fountainhead has a lot to do uh, with Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh, so, so the the logic that was laid out in the books kind of changed my whole perspective on the world, and. Uh, that that has continued and and really been refined by this book that Jeffrey Tucker recently re- introduced me to, which is the Anatomy of the State by Murray Rothbard. Yes, well, um, I think Ayn Rand has a lot to uh, offer us in terms of her perspective. Of course, um, the message of the Fountainhead is that uh, you can be right, even if the whole world says you're wrong, and the importance of not um, compromising your your standards, your integrity. And he wouldn't even compromise for uh, the sake of the woman that he loved. Um, and of course, uh, Atlas Shrugged as well with its message of um, rejecting the uh, appeals to the common good, which are always used by tyrants, um, uh, and rejecting calls for self-sacrifice. And and that we saw throughout these um, mandates that uh, young people who had already recovered 
from uh, COVID who had natural immunity, other people who had natural immunity who didn't need the vaccine were told to, to get it anyway. And uh, young people who are at an absolutely negligible risk of, of serious uh, illness if they didn't have other comorbidities, uh, again, um, called to to sacrifice their interest uh, for the sake of others. And of course, that was always a lie because uh, it was known very early on that the um, the protection that the vaccines conferred was uh, temporary. And so um, it, it just, I, I think that Ayn Rand would have been appalled and, and I'm it's particularly sure. appalled when, when I see um, that others who supposedly should be standing up for Ayn Rand's uh, objectivism um, went the, the wrong way on this issue, accepting government bailouts, um, celebrating uh, and applauding lockdowns and things like that. And the Atlas Society has been very firm from day one in opposing all of that. And of course, um, rejecting any government bailouts. Uh, and on another note, however, um, I, I had also the opportunity to meet your uh, wonderful life partner, Jill. I'm actually hosting the show today from my home, uh, from the home of my parents, who yesterday celebrated their 59th wedding anniversary. So um, I mentioned this because you and your wife, Jill, also have a very long and productive partnership stretching back to when you were high school sweethearts. So maybe talk a little bit about that partnership and curious how she has handled uh, the pressure and of the relentless attacks on you for questioning COVID policy. Well, she gets the attacks too. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's now quite a bit of effort to try to take her down uh, characters yeah, well, her and all she that. She wrote that book, right? She wrote a book um, in the very earliest days of yeah. the epidemic uh, in which she was talking about, here's what you can do to boost your immunity. Here's what you can do to be in better health. And, and that was uh, deplatformed as well, correct? Yeah, in March of yeah. 2020. Amazing, because you guys knew what was going down months beforehand. And uh, when most people were just waking up to the news and trying to figure out uh, what was going on, you both had been very hard at work um, trying to help. So Jill, so Jill, probably the strength of our marriage is, is play, has played a large role in my being able to psychologically sustain what has gone on. Mm -hmm. And likewise, on her side, we we support each other. Uh, the logic of two intertwined trees uh, in Cahil Gibran's uh, poetry speaks to our relationship. Uh, we we're strong advocates for people forming long-term long monogamous relationships and really committing to that at an early age. I'm pardon, pardon how I'm speaking. I'm having to pause for the echo to catch up. Uh, so I, I think that, well, let me put it this way. I've seen many, many marriages dissolve uh, over the last three years, both within the groups of physicians and scientists that we've been touring with 
and mm -hmm. people around us because there has been so much division and strife associated with whether or not to take the product. And I, I've actually had to do expert witness testimony for couples at war with each other over whether or not their children are to be inoculated. Hmm. Uh, this, the, the intentional division that's been promoted throughout this uh, that has just fragmented and fractured our culture has had an enormous impact on the family and extended families on uh, single families on the community, on churches, on all kinds of uh, social organizations. And uh, a strong case can be made that this was intentional. So in our case, because we've had this and because we've made the commitment to always travel together, always be together, uh, co-write the Substack together, uh, we, we make this entire endeavor a joint activity, uh, and we've always lived our lives this way, shared our workload, worked together in the laboratory, worked together in running the consulting uh, service that we ran for decades, et cetera, that this has just been another step in kind of the evolution of our marriage. And and so to those, you, you mentioned that this podcast is directed more towards younger people. Yes. I, I just want to reach out to them and say there's a lot of social pressure encouraging you to delay uh, partnering uh, and to sample the field. Uh, you know, there's all these euphemisms that are used, but there is a real upside to committing yourself to another person of whatever gender. I don't want to uh, cast aspersions on what your sexual preferences are, but forming a monogamous relationship, a long-term monogamous relationship is like building value or equity. You, you, you put into that relationship effort, thought, work, and then when you have hard times, you can pull from that bank account, that emotional bank account. And as you get towards your later years, you know, here I am at 64, the dividends really kick in because you have this long-standing trust relationship and uh, a partner that you can share every aspect of your life and have the memories going back to your youth. So, my my general encouragement is to strongly consider building long-term monogamous relationships as part of other social bonds and relationships. Remember, community is what strengthens us, keeps us from being vulnerable to these tactics of division and strife. And... Uh, strongly consider the benefits of investing in in a long-term relationship with a partnership 
Uh, well, talking about division and discrediting, uh, one of the ways that pe uh, people have tried to silence you, marginalize you, discredit you, is by claiming that you overstated uh, your role in um, mRNA development. So we'd love to hear from you in your own words how you were involved in the early history uh, of mRNA research going back to the 1980s. So uh, the wall behind me, I call the Alex Berenson wall uh, um, in reference to his having attacked me uh, for falsifying my credentials, essentially, uh, on a Fox News broadcast a couple of years ago, uh, as well as uh, denying that ivermectin was effective. So that's, that's the origin of that. Uh, many patents have been issued. Uh, and let's see, I'm gonna try a different, yeah, I'm gonna try this camera angle. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, here you go. Okay, so for some reason it's a uh, cam one that's giving me the echo. And if I go to cam two or cam three, I'm good. So I'm gonna just switch to this, uh, this perfect. view and forgive me if it's not uh, perfect. Uh, so uh, the history of all this, I was just a graduate student, about 28, late 20s, uh, with a young child and a wife living in married student housing at UC San Diego in the middle of my MD from Northwestern. And I really wanted to uh, become expert and participate in the new field of gene therapy for treating pediatric inborn errors of metabolism. That's a big word string that means uh, finding ways to treat genetic disease of children. And at the time, the technology that was at the lead for that field that was exploding, in part because of the leadership of Ted Friedman, a pediatrician uh, from University of California, San Diego, which is where the SALC was and where I was a, a graduate student, uh, the leading technology was retroviruses, these uh, AIDS is a retrovirus. There's many cancer viruses that are retroviruses. And modification of retroviruses was believed to be a way to make this all happen. And so I was allowed into an extremely competitive postdoctoral lab at the Salk Institute in the laboratories of molecular virology. Uh, Salk at the time had a half a dozen Nobel laureates, including Francis Crick. And uh, I needed to find a way forward in that competitive landscape. And so focused on the processes involved in trying to clarify how RNA gets assembled into a retrovirus. And uh, in order to do that, I had to develop a, a suite of technology that did not exist at the time, which was how to manufacture large quantities of pure, highly purified RNA that could be made into protein would be biologically active and how to deliver it into cells. And I tried a lot of different things, worked my can off. Uh, my wife talks about 80 hour work weeks. Uh, I was a little obsessed with trying to make this work. And then I had a, a couple of breakthroughs uh, having to do with the structure of the RNA necessary to make this work. And then was given a heads up by a senior Salk investigator about a new technology for delivery 
involving positively charged fats. We now call them lipid nanoparticles. And at the time that had just been discovered, the first paper had been published from a company called Syntex. And the company and the people behind that uh, embryonic program at Syntex in Palo Alto had wanted to work with RNA as well as with DNA, but they just couldn't make it work. They didn't understand RNA, they couldn't manufacture it, et cetera. And so uh, I had already filed a patent disclosure on the ability to potentially use RNA as a drug, including for vaccine purposes. And the SALK allowed me to engage in a collaborative research effort with this group at Syntex to test out their new reagent. And it turns out that when you mix those two things, it worked like grease lightning. Uh, suddenly it was a major innovation and I went around the SALK collecting cell lines and then uh, frog embryos because I was teaching embryology and then chick embryos and kept trying this uh, together with the reporter gene called luciferase, which was the third art, third leg in the stool that made this all happen. Luciferase is the protein that fireflies make that causes light to be produced, photons of light in a certain chemical reaction when that protein is present. And so the combination of these three things allowed me to quickly demonstrate that this system worked very, very well. And that catalyzed a huge, nasty, messy patent battle between the Salk Institute and UC San Diego and professors on the campus and my mentor at the Salk. Uh, and I got caught in the crossfire and ended up with a uh, nervous breakdown and post-traumatic stress disorder. I had finished my master's, uh, well, really my PhD qualification exams and oral exams, but I just couldn't continue to function and uh, took a master's, left. My wife was still finishing her bachelor's and so I needed a job. And uh, across the street was a new startup company. I was employee number 10 called Vical. And they were working on other things, liposomal, uh, anti-HIV drugs and calcitonin analogs, hence Vical. But they offered to uh, sponsor me to continue my graduate work while my wife was finishing her bachelor's. And so I went over there with my reagents and, and protocols and, and all that stuff, recreated what I was doing at the Salk and carried on. And within about two months, we had a series of additional discoveries having to do with uh, delivering into animals, particularly in mice. And then the use of that for the obvious, uh, easiest application, which was generating an immune response. So vaccines. And that wow. led to a series of patents and patent applications. There's nine of them, uh, US and then all the foreign ones that have issued uh, that were uh, the original uh, concept and reduction to practice of uh, manufacturing the RNA, delivering the RNA, and generating an immune response with the RNA in a mouse that uh, gave rise to uh, Vical, it transformed Vical. Uh, it, it received billions of dollars, but they only focused on the DNA vaccine side, not the RNA vaccine side. Uh, and um, those patents remained under, undeveloped for the RNA stuff until they expired. And then 
the CIA through DARPA funded Moderna and the German government funded BioNTech and the rest is history. And we have the COVID vaccines now. So that's the, the short version. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, and we got a lot of audience questions. We're going to get to those, but I have a few that I wanted to get out of the way. One of the things that we pride ourselves um, at the Atlas Society is that while we're all objectivists, uh, we don't always agree with each other on issues ranging from foreign <laughs> policy to domestic policy. Um, so it's perhaps not surprising that uh, not all of our scholars or donors are of one mind when it comes to pandemic interventions uh, and vaccines uh, specifically, or the COVID vaccine specifically. Yeah. Uh, but it's the way that we handle those disagreements uh, as we try to seek the truth and model civil discussion and debate um, that sets us apart from some other objectivist organizations. So people familiar with this podcast know that my take has been virtually indistinguishable from Jeffrey Tucker's from day one, but I want to acknowledge uh, that one of my colleagues, uh, senior fellow Rob Trasinski has a different perspective and see if I can get your reaction. In one of his recent Substack columns, uh, he looks at data presented by uh, the New York Times comparing, quote, death rates among the unvaccinated, the vaccinated, and the vaccinated and boosted. The vaccinated and boosted are significantly less likely to be infected and about four times less likely to die. The vaccines work. Most of us have had them, 69% of the general public, 94% of the elderly. So the pandemic is now over and uh, at far less, less cost than without the vaccines, end quote. So what has he got right or what has he got wrong with that assessment? So generally, uh, I don't rely on the New York Times for much of anything anymore. Uh, I find the New York Times has become a basically an organ of state propaganda. Uh, and I would be highly suspect of a New York Times-based data analysis that is so at variance with uh, what is now a worldwide consensus on this concerning the uh, effectiveness and safety of the products. Uh, the, the key issue here is really twofold. And one of, the, one of them uh, I is what really caused me to start raising concerns and uh, was the subject of today's Substack, by the way, uh, which is informed consent, including consent of the governed. And uh, what we have not had throughout this has been open transparency about potential risks to patients. There has been a uh, clear, um, unequivocal breach of global ethical norms in terms of informed consent. And uh, as just a bedrock position, this is what caused me to come out of the closet, essentially, as a vaccine developer of 30 plus years of regarding these products is the failure of the government, not only to provide informed consent, but the willingness of the government to withhold information from the public under the logic that if they were to share with the public the true risks that were known to the government, such as with myocarditis, uh, and there's just been another paper come out today or shortly um, recently from Australia, as I recall, 
that documents that that myocarditis uh, persists and has long-term consequences at the six-month level. So the uh, lies we were told by Janet Woodcock, acting director of the FDA, that the myocarditis is mild and, and short-term are, are now clearly refuted. Uh, so my, my position all the way through this, my fundamental position, has been that it has been the uh, accepted norm since World War II that individuals, sovereign individuals, so this speaks directly to the objectivist uh, um, frame of reference. Sovereign individuals have uh, the right to uh, determinism over their own body. Uh, and uh, they have the right to be informed and make their own judgment as to whether or not they wish to accept, particularly an injected medical product, but really any medical product. And this is not radical. Uh, this has been uh, accepted norm globally for decades, as I said, since World War II and the Nuremberg trials. Uh, it, is, it is, in my opinion, fundamental uh, to the respect of the individual that the state um, uh, recognizes the autonomy and sovereignty of the individual as it relates to their own medical decisions. And again, this is not a radical position. This is uh, something that I was taught uh, and re had reinforced multiple times as a clinical researcher and as a fellow in the Harvard Global Clinical Research Scholars Program. So uh, what we now know and is, is abundantly documented through Freedom of Information Act uh, requests and uh, a variety of other uh, mechanisms that have caused uh, information to be revealed is that there has been an intentional withholding of information from the public by the government uh, concerning the risks of these products. It's also was acknowledged by the New York Times uh, over a year ago that the CDC, for instance, has been politicized and is manipulating uh, and has been manipulating data concerning the outcomes uh, associated with these products. So failure to provide informed consent uh, and by extension, failure to obtain the consent of the governed that has deeper consequences, in my opinion, uh, in terms I of the social contract and uh, the relevance of uh, our constitutional form of government. Uh, and that, that was the second main thrust of my essay today. Um, in terms of, so first off, a gross failure of informed consent based on the logic that this virus had a 3.4% case fatality rate based on modeling, not on actual data. Whereas Jade Bhattacharya early on at Stanford revealed from his studies that the true case fatality rate, even in the first wave, when the virus was more pathogenic, was about 0.02% on the range of what uh, influenza is. Okay, so we were told, and this was all justified based on 3.4% case fatality rate, when in fact that was a lie based on modeling from a laboratory in the UK, Imperial College, that has a long history of overestimating infectious disease risk. Why they were even listened to is uh, another topic. Uh, but 
Um, based on that, the government uh, then accelerated these various uh, interventions, including the uh, SARS-CoV-2 vaccines, genetic vaccines, and uh, bypassed uh, the normal clinical review procedures and safety procedures that have been established as norms in my industry for decades. Uh, so they bypassed those norms, skipped those tests, uh, didn't uh, require those studies to be done. And we're now seeing the uh, a new information concerning those risks coming out, the risks that were not correctly assessed or rigorously assessed, Concerning, for instance, the contamination with DNA fragments, which are also delivered into your cells using the same formulations, and the presence of uh, contaminants like endotoxin, which comes from the bacteria that are used to produce the plasma DNA, uh, and other uh, adulterations or adulterants, and failures to uh, ensure necessary quality control. So. Uh, the products were rushed, they weren't adequately tested, and uh, the safety profile was hidden from the government. Uh, and this was justified based on a lie about the toxicity of the virus, which the government had helped create. That's now also clear, the origin of the virus at the Wuhan Institute of Virology involved technology and information transfer facilitated by EcoHealth Alliance and, and Peter Daszak uh, and funded by the US government uh, and performed in a kind of a budget uh, laboratory environment at the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China. Basically, they outsourced the research for the gain of function. Uh, so uh, this uh, virus was highly infectious, not highly pathogenic. These vaccines were rushed. Uh, we are still learning about the risks. These risks include uh, autoimmune diseases and apparently malignancies, which are not accounted for in the current uh, official databases, which by the way, the VAERS system has now been closed by the CDC. And so they're no longer accounting for what the adverse events, and particularly the longer-term adverse events, and they never have been accounting for the longer-term adverse events because they've defined vaccine toxicity as a two-week horizon after administration of the product. Um, the uh, data on effectiveness is now widely acknowledged as having suffered this 95 or 97% effectiveness in preventing disease, it's not clear what the endpoints are, uh, was uh, manipulated by selecting the uh, most optimal statistical analysis method. Uh, and when one uses a more traditional statistical analysis method to uh, calculate the effectiveness and uh, also uh, factor in the many patients who were uh, removed from the study for spurious reasons, we end up with a product that's something initially in the range of 40% effective. 
Pfizer itself acknowledged that they had no data demonstrating that the virus, uh, that the vaccines would protect against infection, replication, or spread. That was another lie. Remember all the talk about herd immunity. That was all based on conjecture. There was no data, were no data establishing that the products would be effective at preventing uh, replication and spread or infection. And in fact, they don't. That's also now widely acknowledged. They don't prevent that. And anybody in their daily uh, lives is well aware that the highly vaccinated in particular are now demonstrated to be more susceptible to infection, disease, and death than those with natural immunity. Those are the data worldwide. Whatever the New York Times says is replicated again and again. So well, as vaccines ran... aren't effective at preventing infection, replication, or spread. They don't do that. We're down to arguing whether or not they reduce severe disease and death. And in the case of the current boosters, there is no evidence supporting that. Remember, what, they're, what your colleague is probably arguing about are data from early in the outbreak prior to Omicron, when virtually all of us became infected and developed natural immunity. So failure of informed consent, no clear data of effectiveness in terms of the traditional vaccine endpoints, prevention of infection, replication, or spread. Marginal data, which is highly controversial concerning uh, the uh, reduction in disease and death at some prior point in time with early variants. And now we have these all-cause mortality data from insurance actuaries all over the world, which are the only reliable data because the governments have been basically manipulating data, particularly the Western governments, concerning the risks and effectiveness of the products. And that all-cause actuarial data, when analyzed rigorously by skilled academics that have spent decades of their lives working with all-cause mortality data, indicate that as opposed to the Lancet paper suggesting there was 14 million lives saved by these products, that in fact there was 17 million excess deaths associated with the distribution of these products. And that death count is still not peaked. So when you look at the insurance actuarial curves, again, the most reliable data in the world, what you see is that excess deaths do not start Excess all-cause mortality does not start in 2020 when we had the more virulent virus because, of course, the case fatality rate was only 0.02%. But in fact, they start, the inflection point occurs after the rollout of the vaccines. And it is continuing to climb. Even the current uh, head of FDA recently posted on Twitter the observation that we've had a paradoxical plummeting of life expectancy in the United States over the last year and two years, it is unaccounted for, unexplained. And there seems to be a complete lack of interest in ascertaining what is the cause of that reduction in life expectancy in the United States. So I don't know what the data are that your colleague is citing but he appears, based on my assessment of the data, to be um, at one extreme in the curve of, of discussion. Uh, and, and scientific discussion and debate is a good thing. Uh, 
Um, and I, I value it, honor it, uh, embrace it, and welcome it. But uh, as I said in testimony uh, in the UK Parliament, I mean, the yeah, the UK Parliament uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, this can all be readily resolved if governments will stop hiding the data. Now, why are governments hiding the data? I think that's probably pretty self-evident to people that would be listening to this podcast because it doesn't support their thesis and their position. If the governments would become open and transparent with the data like was attempted in New Zealand by a whistleblower who now is facing seven years in jail for having done so, uh, if the data was made open and transparent, then we could all look at that data, analyze that data with a common baseline rather than this kind of sniping over, well, you got that part of the data wrong, you got that part of the data wrong, you're, you're dealing with the wrong data set, or that's contaminated in this way or that way. And so we could cut through all that stuff if we had open, transparent disclosure from the governments of what has actually transpired. And then we could have a rational scientific discussion examining that. And that's, that's my bedrock position here is rather than engaging in this tit for tat, oh, I'm gonna cite this study or I'm gonna cite that study, et cetera, uh, let's, let's all agree that what we need is transparent disclosure from the governments of the world uh, of their data so that this can be examined and comprehended because there is the appearance that we have both a major ethical breach and a human tragedy, which is ongoing. Because remember, these people that have died, lost family members. I just was on a Zoom call earlier today when someone related three separate cases in their immediate family of elderly people and middle-aged people dying within two days of receiving another booster. Uh, maybe that's just coincidence. But uh, we have suggestions that we have a massive human tragedy, including those that are vaccine damaged and are not receiving care. And I think that we owe that to them. And as uh, objectivists, as, as uh, lovers of freedom, uh, I would think that this community in particular would join me in embracing a call for open transparency, disclosure, and uh, um, objective analysis of uh, data concerning this so that we can all move forward because the appearance is that we have had uh, major malfeasance uh, on the part of uh, Western governments in uh, breaching the personal rights of individuals, uh, their property rights, they're these, these rights that we have assumed were guaranteed by the Constitution for congregation, personal property, personal autonomy, right? You know, assembly, uh, religion, et cetera, et cetera, have been compromised. And in retrospect, when you analyze the data around those decisions, none of them provided benefit and all of them are associated with uh, harm uh, to individuals in the public. And this, if we don't respond to this, it will continue to be done. It will be normalized. And I argue in my essay well, yeah. today that this I'm, is I'm just, a breach of contract. 
Yeah, um, and we're going to put the link to your essay uh, in all of our chats, but those chat streams are really filling up with a lot of questions from our audience. So I'll we're going to get more to- brief. But that was a hot topic. Try to get to uh, a few of them. And I have a lot more questions of my own, having read this book, uh, which I highly recommend. But um, all right, my modern Galt on Instagram, who's always first through the gate uh, typing in his question, he wants to know, can lockdowns like those in 2020 happen again? Um, or maybe the better question is whether people will let it happen again. Uh so what we haven't talked about is the psychological warfare or fifth generation warfare that has been deployed on the citizenry by this public-private partnership between the governments and pharma and uh, corporate media. And the power of modern uh, media-based psychological manipulation technology is such that clearly populations can be uh, hypnotized to tolerate uh, amazing insults. And I, I, I argue, as I was saying, what we have here is a fundamental breach of contract uh, in the sense that the constitution represents a contract, a social contract between uh, the governed and the governors and uh, the elected officials. And uh, by not objecting to that breach of contract, we have essentially uh, conceded the right of uh, the government to act in this way in the future, uh, technically, from a legal standpoint. And uh, um, I, I have not only no doubt, but uh, the language of the uh, new pandemic treaty uh, for the uh, World Health Organization and the international health regulations uh, will strengthen the ability of uh, this globalist organization, the WHO, to impose such measures as well as to mandate that you accept whatever uh, medical procedures or other procedures that they shall recommend in the event that they declare another public health emergency. And oh, by the way, there's over 200 scientific publications advocating that they do so. They declare a public health emergency specifically because of human-induced climate change. So that's where we're going. Not only will they, uh, I anticipate they absolutely, you know, not only can they, they will. And they will use these uh, CYWAR technologies to, and already are to convince a uh, scared intimidated public to go along with these measures, which will compromise uh, um, fundamental aspects of sovereignty and personal rights. Over. All right. Over on LinkedIn, Jackson Rollins asks, what do you think about the dramatic increase in the number of vaccines required for infants and young children? Is it necessary, preventable measures or something else going on? What we've had, and I've watched this through my entire career, is uh, a policy put in place under Nixon that uh, provided indemnification to the vaccine manufacturers, coupled with the Vaccines for Children's program, which provides a guaranteed purchase and distribution network. So if you're a pharmaceutical industry uh, corporation, 
what you have is the opportunity to develop products for which you have no liability. You have a single purchaser. And if you can get your product into the Vaccines for Children program, in other words, approved for pediatric use and recommended by the CDC for that use, then you have a cash cow in perpetuity. And functionally, you have a monopoly because it's so expensive for another company to bring another product to market. So it's no surprise that you've seen a massive explosion of the uh, vaccines uh, schedule, pediatric vaccine schedule, because the perverse financial incentives together with the complete indemnification of the manufacturers have incentivized corporations to do this and a captured CDC and FDA with its revolving door relationships has been more than happy to comply. Remember the CDC in particular has a dual function as it relates to vaccines. It's supposed to report on vaccine safety and efficacy, as well as infectious disease risks. But it also has a mandate to advocate and support vaccine compliance and distribution. And paradoxically, the funding for supporting vaccines is much greater than the funding for an analyzing and regulating vaccines. And that's how we end up with this is because of these dual function agencies and the same problems exist across virtually every one of these agencies, USDA, FAA, again and again, you see the same problem where we empower these federal agencies for dual purpose of both regulating the industry and advocating for the industry. That's a good start. There's a lot more underneath that. Uh, and and I, I could go on for an hour on that topic. <laughs> well, speaking of that, can you give us another 10, maybe 15 minutes? Because I think we got a little I, bit of a I, I, I am so, Jennifer, I'm so grateful that you've uh, forgiven me for being a little bit late. Uh, I will stay here as long as you want to ask me questions. All right, great. Um, because I do want to get to the, the book, but also, you know, kind of um, here we are. It's the holidays and a favorite uh, Christmas activity in many households is re-watching the great holiday classic, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, in the movie, of course, the angel Clarence shows uh, the despairing protagonist, George Bailey. How would uh, the world have turned out if um, if he had never been born? So I in rewatching this with my parents, I wanted to put that to you. How might the world have turned out if, rather than George Bailey, if Anthony Fauci uh, had never been born or at least um, had not been in a okay. position to dictate uh, pandemic policy? What would yeah. that world have, have looked out with regards okay, a couple to of things. Um, Anthony Fauci has become a very convenient scapegoat. And right. uh, it may be over the next, there, there's things afloat in, in moving in DC right now relating to this uh, that I I can't really speak about much. Uh, I'm in touch with federal investigators, et cetera. Uh, um, Anthony Fauci is one of many guilty parties here. Uh, and we also had a widespread systems failure. And this was kind of the culmination of that. And yes, he did sit as the head of the, at the top of the pyramid 
of the biodefense industrial complex in a sense. Uh, a strong case can be made that Peter Daszak may be uh, more of the puppet master here and Anthony Fauci is more of a middleman, uh, a bureaucratic functionary. He's, he's certainly no genius. Uh, I, I don't know of any particular innovation that I can ascribe to Tony Fauci during his career. He is a politician, bureaucrat, scientist, and um, has become a master at DC politics, which has its own uh, idiosyncratic uh, set of rules. Uh, and um, I don't wish to minimize his uh, complicity and role here, but uh, there are many others. I mentioned Janet Woodcock earlier, uh, uh, Daszak, of course, uh, um, the entire EcoHealth Alliance, uh, Ralph Barrick, uh, the CCP and Wuhan Institute of Virology and uh, um, People's Liberation Army uh, clearly has uh, a role and should be held accountable. Uh, so should uh, Stefan Bonsell, who led the manufacturing, the development, the build of the Wuhan Institute of Virology before he became CEO of Moderna. Uh, we have uh, players, uh, Rochelle Walensky, uh, um, Deborah Burks. I, you know, the, 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 it's difficult to sort out the top 10 guilty parties here, uh, and all of them are guilty of disinformation. Uh, so I guess I would answer your question. I don't think that if we were to able, like a, if, if we were playing Jenga, uh, and the, the block that says Anthony Fauci, we pulled out of the stack. I don't think the stack would fall. I think that it was supported by too many other structures, incentives, and personnel that both uh, nationally and globally, that uh, this, this was a uh, catastrophic system failure long in the making. Uh, and... Uh, Tony was uh, particularly adroit at exploiting many of the problems within that system, but uh, the biodefense industrial complex has, uh, much like the military industrial complex, uh, is much deeper and broader in its corruption and its activities than just Tony Fauci. And you can see that now. The whole thing is continuing. It, with the same momentum or greater momentum in his absence. So I hope right. that answers your question. Yes, it does. Um, I mean, we could have also applied it to Donald Trump because um, he wasn't a scientist, clearly, but he was a leader. And as a leader, you need to have vision. And he, at the crucial juncture of his, his presidency, presidency, tragically, uh, failed to have the, the vision and the courage to um yeah. so to trump out. trump is a is a tough one here uh because we're looking at a complicated political landscape now and we're once again faced with the lesser of two evils functionally mm -hmm. uh in that i i uh, i love bobby kennedy uh um and think the world of him and admire who his wrote practice. the introduction to your book yeah uh i i uh can't say enough positive about bobby kennedy but i'm afraid that uh, were he to find himself, which I think is highly improbable as anything more than a spoiler in this upcoming election, uh, 
DC would eat him alive within months, uh, just like they rolled uh, Donald J. Trump. Now, Trump, you know, with his own idiosyncratic problems uh, that, you know, I don't prefer to delve into too deeply because a man is thin skinned. Uh, he, uh, the appearance is that he was rolled, but he refuses to acknowledge what took place. Uh, and in part, I think one of the big problems that happened in that presidency was he wasn't, I don't think he thought he was going to win. He wasn't prepared to win. He didn't have the depth of the bench for appointments. And he ended up appointing a lot of deep staters into his own administration, and they then proceeded to backstab him. Uh, is that an excuse? As you point out, uh, the buck stops here. The president is the uh, ultimate decider. Uh, he did have that responsibility. He was sitting at the resolute desk, and uh, he did uh, uh, he did attempt for instance, with Scott Atlas, to get second opinions. Uh, but uh, for whatever reason, he seems to have had a weakness, as we all do in our characters, that allowed, uh, I, th I think he's, he's, one of his key weaknesses is sycophants. And, and I think that uh, there's a good chance that he got played uh, by parties who uh, were, um, uh, very solicitous uh, of him uh, and uh, appeared on the surface to be deferential, but like often happens in DC, uh, were not what they appeared. But that doesn't excuse why he isn't backing, you know, uh, acknowledging uh, the errors. Uh, right. I think time. that would be uh, a refreshing show of honesty and integrity and, um, yep. you know, would help to increase. We're, uh, we're aligned. Uh, trust. It, okay. it is a major electoral weakness that he's facing right yeah, now. Yeah. I mean, he's still out there saying I saved, you know, millions and hundreds of yeah. millions of lives and blah, blah, blah. Uh, all right. Let's turn to your book, Lies My Government Told Me and The Better Future Coming, which you co-authored with your wife, Jill, in it, you describe the chilling phenomenon of doctors being hunted down by journalists to expose them for offering early treatments, uh, not federally sanctioned, and the pylon of others seeking to um, have such doctors medically uh have their medical licenses revoked. Uh, it's like reinforcing the old narrative that all doctors agree if yeah. uh, you eliminate those who don't. So um, what are some of the examples of that? Well, uh, there, so in the, the book is structured into three sections and, and basically it was written in a serialized fashion through our substack. And frankly, the substack has continued uh, our journey of trying to make sense out of the craziness of the COVID crisis and uh, what it means in terms of our government and uh, the world around us. Uh, and and when we finalized the book, which is a, a little over a year ago now, it was out for last Christmas, uh, we were still on that journey and we still are. I, I can't believe we keep uncovering stuff on a daily basis. Uh, but uh, it's structured into three sections as akin to the way a physician approaches a patient, where the first thing that a physician does is take a history and physical 
check in with a patient. What's your chief complaint? What's really happened to you? What's been your experiences? The second is uh, functionally the diagnosis. How do we make sense out of this? Um, the third part is what is the treatment plan? What can we do about it? What can we do to fix the problems with the government, et cetera? And then that bleeds into my attempt to find some silver linings in all of this as we look forward to a different future. Um, and I, of course, advocate a future that's more aligned with uh, the goals of your organization uh, in which we value community and uh, integrity and uh, human dignity and personal freedoms. Uh, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, we may have to all go down into our own Galt's Gulch uh, between now and then. Uh, and that we kind of talk about that a little bit. In the first section, yeah. I have a number of narratives, first person narratives from physicians who have been subjected to this, as well as a newspaper editor uh, and others that uh, have experienced this uh, censorship. And since the book came out, we have had the benefit of the group, uh, Michael Schellenberger, Matt Taibbi, Racket News, uh, the uh, consequences of uh, Missouri versus Biden and the reveals from that, all of the FOIA information, uh, the FOIA information about the specific targeting of the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration uh, by this bully group. I mean, that's, that's really what we have here is academic and uh, media bullying of physicians. And it's, and it's come out through a variety of disclosures that much of this has been organized by uh, the intelligence community and by uh, organizations like CISA within the US government and the UK government, the 77th Brigade. And we absolutely have documentation now about the deployment of, I referred previously to fifth generation warfare, of PSYOPs, military PSYOPs divisions against their own citizenry in the United States, Great Britain, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia, the Five Eyes Nations, um, and probably also in, in much of Western Europe. So uh, what has been revealed is that a lot of this activity has been organized. Uh, we've had, of course, the various, uh, I, I refer to them now as Mockingbird Media, a very uh, intelligence community influenced and coordinated corporate media outlets and their messaging and attacks, coordinated attacks on me and many others. It's not just me. I'm just kind of a particularly good case study because I was out early and out visibly uh, and a little bit harder to take down, uh, I think, than some. Uh, but uh, we have now, for instance, the evidence that through the CD Foundation for CDC, which is funded by the pharmaceutical industry and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and other players. So this nonprofit foundation that the Congress has specifically allowed, there's an analogous one for NIH, has taken the donated money and funded the public good projects, which then has funded a contract to shots heard around the world. This is just one example that has assembled essentially a social media gang stalking group Gang stalking is te technically a federal crime, but uh, they've organized this and they send out emails. They've arranged for these social media influencers, many of them physicians and scientists, uh, all, all ostensibly working to advance the public good because of course, uh, anything that would cause vaccine hesitancy 
uh, would cause excess loss of life because the vaccines are so good and the virus is so deadly. Uh, and so what the uh, Foundation for CDC did through this contracting mechanism was assemble a, a group, very large group of social media influencers and then arranged with the social media companies that these people would not be retaliated against in any way. So they got special protections and status and then would send out email blasts to these people saying, hey, Dr. X has said this thing on Twitter or X or, or LinkedIn. I'm still off of LinkedIn, by the way. Um, or, you know, Facebook or choose your poison. And then these people would all attack that person and also send letters to their medical boards, et cetera, um, complaining and asking that these people lose their license. Now, um, Jennifer, here's the good news. It could be worse uh, because in Canada, they have literally implemented uh, re-education programs in which, uh, and Jordan Peterson, of course, is one of the most high profile of individuals, but many average physicians who prescribed uh, early treatment or wrote medical exemptions for the vaccines have also been convicted in these kangaroo courts. And in order to retain their license, they have to pay for re-education, call it re-education. I mean, this is, this is textbook USSR. Um, mm -hmm. They, ha they have to have re-education and uh, at the end of their uh, five or $6,000 re-education program that they have to take, they have to write, write a letter indicating uh, their uh, um, uh, regret uh, or their various transgressions. And uh, if, if that is not sufficiently persuasive and convincing to a anonymous review board, then they have to retake that whole program and write another letter at the end of it at their own cost if they wish to continue practicing medicine. So my point is that uh, it could be worse. Uh, and like a lot of the things that we've seen during the COVID crisis, for instance, the debanking, the advocacy right. for central bank digital currency, uh, um, various so forms of social control, this has been pioneered in what I assert is a client state of the World Economic Forum now, and uh, is intended to be deployed uh, throughout the other uh, client states of the WEF. And a good case could be made that the UK is already there, Ireland is already there, New Zealand, uh, throughout Jacinda Ardern. Uh, so, so far there's some good signs there. But the uh, next election, I believe, is going to make a determination about whether or not the United States is going to become a full WEF client state, as opposed to this kind of hybrid globalist uh, situation where we find ourselves right now. The other day, I was talking to a colleague from uh, CPAC who was telling me about Kevin McCarthy. Uh, one of the bizarre things that's happened over the last three years is I've been embraced by the conservative community, as, as you mentioned with Jeffrey. Uh, and they told me that Kevin McCarthy is all in on globalism. Uh, and uh, his position is just that the Republicans need to find a way to do it better than the Democrats. That's where we're at, okay, is, is what we've seen play out around us, uh, which so many are asserting is a intended, intentional creeping form of 
socialist Marxism, uh, is embraced uh, by what are ostensibly both, you know, both political parties that are supposed to be in opposition. But uh, we have euphemisms for this, like rhinos, et cetera. And they're all kind of playing from the same playbook. They're just arguing about the fringes, the nuances of the new world order. Uh, and that's that's what's in play. Uh, if if uh, people don't stand up and object and wake up, uh, we're, we're going to see this uh, integrated system of information and media control and thought control that is so aligned with the dark uh, warnings of George Orwell. Um, and, and Ayn Rand, and Ayn Rand. Absolutely, absolutely. Ayn Rand um, is, you know, George Orwell is like the operational side. Ayn Rand is the underlying intellectual underpinnings uh, that drive all of this as a system. Uh, right. And, and as I say, uh, uh, you know, the anarcho-capitalists are all uh, dancing right now, uh, feeling completely vindicated. <laughs> well, yes, of course, Ayn Rand was not an, an anarchist, um, but but she did believe that ideas ruled the world and that uh, politics is downstream from culture, culture is downstream from, from philosophy. And that's why um, we focus on introducing young people to uh, the philosophical ideas of Ayn Rand and, and objectivism. Um, I always like to say that to be objective, one must have perspective. And I think uh, it is very easy to get dispirited because we're constantly bombarded by negative yeah. headlines and bad news. And, and we're, you know, evolutionarily wired to uh, look for threats. So, um, but you and uh, your wife have certainly been a model of resilience. Every every interview uh, I've ever watched of yours, it's always with equanimity and grace and good cheer and generosity. So um, looking around, what do you see as some of the, the positive reasons for, for hope so that we can fortify ourselves um, to be committed to fight what's wrong, but also uh, gain some strength and ballast from what might be going right and gain gratitude for that as we lean into 2024. Well, thanks for the opportunity to try to close on a positive note, which is also the message of the book. Uh, what is that better future? And uh, I, I earnestly and honestly believe that we are going through a transition period, a turning. And that turning can move towards, in theory, the world of transhumanism and, and that dark aeon, referencing another book, uh, a version in which humanity is merely a stepping stone to evolution of a, a machine species that's superior. That's that vision. Um, uh, I, I think that uh, our future as a species and as individuals is very much grounded in the dynamic tension between the sovereign individual and a group or collective action. I'm not in any way a collectivist. I'm not a socialist. But uh, having learned from the logic, particularly of Atlas Shrugged, uh, I believe that um, we we do need 
to self-assemble into active communities that share a common commitment to uh, the ideal of living in a world with a minimalist government. I'm not personally an ANCAP. I'm probably more properly described as is Jeffrey as a micro cap. I'm a fan of minimal government. Uh, I'm a, a constitutionalist, at least at present. I think that's the best uh, document we have at present uh, for managing human affairs in a governmental structure. Uh, I, I do believe in the, in, and have really benefited from the counseling of Matthias Desmet, author of The Psychological Basis of Totalitarianism, and coming out with a new book focusing on what we can do uh, to overcome this creeping totalitarianism that we've all been subjected to and immersed in. What we can do to wake up and help wake up our fellow men or persons. And his prescription is, in short, truth speech. So one thing that all of you can do as a positive action item is commit yourself to speaking truth. Speaking truth is, is more than just what it seems on the surface. It's opening up your soul to others and speaking from the heart, speaking with a profound honesty. Sometimes that's extremely painful, but people respond to it. They can recognize when it happens. And it, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not a perfect uh, uh, communicator, of truth speech, but I, it seems to be something that I, I manage to hit from time to time that resonates with an audience. Uh, and uh, as a consequence of speaking truth to authority, uh, speaking my truth, recognizing that truth is often uh, context dependent, uh, I have been subjected to uh, enormous levels of attacks from every corner of the compass uh, politically, and uh, they continue. Uh, and yet, here I am. Uh, my marriage is intact. My wife loves me. I love my wife. Uh, our farm, our own personal Galt's Gulch thrives. Our horses are all fine. Our dogs are happy. Uh, and I'm still uh, communicating as I am here and trying to live in a world of ideas, interpretation, comprehension, and share that with others. And if I can withstand it, you can too. So don't, uh, don't allow the bullies to intimidate your speech, intimidate your truth. Don't let them shut you up. In the Bibles, there's the uh, infamous parable uh, having to do with hiding one's light under a bushel basket. Uh, speak freely, speak honestly, recognize that you will be uh, receiving blowback, including bullying and harassment from people who don't understand you, who don't agree with you. Uh, but please have the courage to try to practice truth speech in your daily life, within your family, to your children, to your relatives, to the souls in the grocery line. I like to say, don't be a jerk about it, uh, but uh, 
be honest. And when you do that, or let me put it the opposite way, if you don't do that, every time you withhold your truth, a little tiny bit of your soul is carved out. And when you get to 64, you know, when you're 64, I'm there. Uh, <laughs> you know, Beatles song. Uh, um, it's really nice to arrive with your soul more or less intact. We all make mistakes and God knows I've made mine. Uh, but uh, by speaking truth and remaining true to your that inner voice, uh, you can uh, retain ownership of your soul. And that's worth something. And then the other thing I like to close on, in addition to emphasizing the importance of truth, speech, and courage, is these three words that came to me when I was trying to build a speech uh, to give on the Lincoln Memorial, you know, very cold January, I think it was over two years ago, in which I emphasized integrity, dignity, and community as the three things if you focus on those that can help get us out of this. Integrity, of course, being being truthful, something that has been grossly compromised throughout this last three years and beyond. We now know that the government has been lying to us for decades and decades and decades and does it in, with a skill uh, and ability the likes of which uh, has never been seen before because of digital media, et cetera. Um, Integrity has to be restored. And I argue in the uh, kind of the foundation documents for the Malone Institute that we shouldn't even do business with people who lack integrity. Just don't do it. Dignity comes from some discussions I had uh, with a biographer of a key Catholic bishop, Bishop Pagano. And uh, he emphasized the importance of human dignity in the teachings of the church. Uh, and I think that's an important underpinning too. We have had human dignity trampled into the mud during this. This is what the failure to provide informed consent is. This is the belief system that the state knows better, that the nanny state has the right to tell you what to do, that they, they have the right to determine how you should act and what you should do. That, that is destructive of this fundamental property of human dignity, the respect that we should show each other, no matter what our walk of life is. And then the last one, community, that comes from Matthias's teaching that the underlying event here that has enabled the government to deploy these various strategies on us so effectively has been fragmentation and loss of community. And uh, I think that the way forward to the better future in particular runs through the assembly of what are functionally autonomous communities, such as were described in Galt's Gulch, and the growth of new ethics and structures. I don't know what the answers are. I don't know what the best political solutions are. I don't know the best way for humans to self-assemble in communities. Many various experiments have been tried over time, but not all possibilities have been explored. I think that's what the young people can give to the world is the possibility of a breakthrough in, in human community organization and structure. And, and that's 
And I believe it's got to be a decentralized one. Yes. And, uh, one. and that's hopefully what we can provide at the Atlas Society to the young people in our community at uh, coming to our Galt, Galt 2.0 uh, conference in Washington, D.C. next summer uh, that uh, at least for them to explore, understand, and try out the principles of um, relating to each other, uh, rational self-interest, and a politics of laissez-faire capitalism. So uh, the book, again, is Lies My Government Told Me and the Better Future Coming. Uh, everyone, please check it out. Uh, Dr. Malone, thank you so much for joining us. And um, particularly during this holiday time, I really appreciate you. And I really enjoyed meeting both you and your wife. And I hope to see you again soon. Thanks, Jennifer. And thanks for tolerating my long-windedness. <laughs> and I want to thank all of you who have uh, joined us on our very last um the Atlas Society asks of the year next week, it will be 2024. So I see all of you that sign up on, um, on Zoom, all of you that ask questions, all of you that join us. Uh, I see some of you who are uh, putting your money where your mouth is. You're supporting the Atlas Society with tax deductible donations. And I know some of you were probably waiting till today to do that. So uh, make sure to get your tax-deductible donation to support the Atlas Society in. If it's the very first time you've ever donated, that donation, whether it's five or 10 or 100 or whatever, will be matched by our board. So thanks in advance. And I will see you next year uh, when we are going to be joined by editor-at-large for Tablet Magazine, Liel Leibovitz. We're going to be talking about the surge in anti-Semitism on college campuses and what we can do about it. Thanks, everyone. See you soon.